Blog Talk Radio. Marcia Joyner with Betrayed by Hospice. Thank you, Marty, for having this forum for us to discuss important issues like we're just going to be discussing this evening. I'd like to go back in time for some of our listeners who have never experienced the pain of losing a loved one that was not actually dying at the time hospice came in. Some of our listeners may have experienced this type of ending to their loved ones and found hospice to be compassionate, and you're one of the lucky ones. What we need to talk about is a situation where a patient is enrolled in hospice that does not have cancer or an incurable illness. Many of the guests have shared their heartfelt stories of losing loved ones due to being in hospice and sedated with opioids, antipsychotic drugs, until they died from the drugs, starvation, and dehydration. The last days of their life were taken from the patient and from their families. We don't say all hospices are bad, but many are rogue and hasten death without. My mom was one of those who was cruelly murdered by hospice in June of 2017, and it took my sister and I six months to find out that her case was not unique and that stealth euthanasia was happening across the nation. That's when I found our guest speaker, Mr. Ron Panzer, who is the founder of Hospice Patients Alliance, established in 1998. Ron is a nurse a graduate of Syracuse University, and has served as an expert consultant on hospice for thousands of families, patients, and staff from all over the nation, and has been interviewed on various radio shows, speaker at many conferences. He has authored several books, including Family Guide to Hospice Care, Self-Euthanasia, Healthcare Tyranny in America, and Restoring the Culture of Life, as well as written many articles. Hospice Patients Alliance mission is to promote excellent, excellence in end-of-life care that relieves suffering at the end of life while allowing a natural death in its own time. Ron, we are honored to have you as our speaker here tonight, and I'd like to give you a few minutes to speak before I start asking you some questions that many of our listeners would like to know and would find very helpful. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. Um, well, uh, it's an honor to be on the show, and I know that there are a lot of people who are hurting out there um, who have had some bad experiences. Um, hospice and the healthcare industry uh, entirely has been transformed, um, turning from a Judeo-Christian-based ethical system to a secular bioethics kind of system where they're utilitarian and devalue the lives of the elderly, the disabled, and the chronically ill. There's a tremendous pressure put on anyone of any age, literally any age, child, adult, or elder, uh, who goes into the acute care setting and goes in and out more than three times. Uh, If you go and you're not uh, treated successfully and you come back, they basically give up on you nowadays and they don't want to treat you. And then they're recommending hospice and you will find the social worker, the doctors, the nurses, all saying you have to go into hospice. Um, and there's there are financial incentives and disincentives given by the federal and state government to the hospitals and doctors, disincentives for having higher charges and costs per patient, uh, just like the HMOs have done. So the federal and state governments are basically using managed care techniques to keep costs down. And even though they promised they would never ration, 
they are actually rationing care by lowering the compensation or reimbursement to the facilities and doctors. And then when these hospitals and doctors uh, don't receive compensation that equals what their costs are or to maintain a profit necessary to stay in business, they dump the patients into hospice. And there are other reasons why patients are put into hospice. They may be uh, malpractice cases, and they can say, oh, we discovered cancer when there was no cancer. Um, we've had many cases like that where the hospice patient died and the family uh, was very puzzled and they had an autopsy done and they found there was no cancer. And there were no tests ever done to prove that there was cancer, but they were told. And then the patient died in hospice. But what did they, what did they die of? if they didn't have cancer. So there's a lot of undeclared medical killing going on. Uh, many people in the industry will deny it. Uh, that's why we call it stealth euthanasia, S-T-E-A-L-T-H, hidden killings, uh, just like the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. Uh, many people didn't know about it. Some people did. There were rumors. Um, but they didn't put it on the front page, yes, we're killing people. They uh, covered it up as best they could, and uh, then even though other people knew about it, a lot of people said they weren't going to do anything about it, and they allowed it to happen. The same thing is happening now uh, in healthcare, and our society has changed or transitioned from a culture of life uh, we may not have been a perfect culture of life, but we were certainly more pro-life 40 or 50 years ago uh, than we are now. We are definitely using the ethics that the Nazis had in their healthcare facilities, and that's why you see these medical killings. Okay. Um, what I'd like to discuss to start discussing with you is when did you personally become involved with this? What happened that you realized this was going on? Uh, well, um, I've been a whistleblower three times, three different corporations. Um, and when I was working in the hospice of Michigan in 1996 and 97, they were committing Medicare fraud that was widely publicized in the Detroit papers. Um, they had committed fraud by charging the higher Detroit rate of reimbursement throughout the state, which was illegal. Each area has a different rate of reimbursement. And uh, they were ordered to pay back millions of dollars because they had stolen the money. And in order to do that, they committed more fraud uh, when I was there. Then they basically uh, were having the nurses chart that they were doing continuous care, which uh, is reimbursed at several hundred dollars more per day per patient because it's one-on-one -on -one care uh, compared to routine home care level of care, which is uh, certainly not one-on-one -on -one and uh, maybe uh, an RN or an LPN visits once or two times a week. You have aid visits with ordinary hospice care, and you can have uh, services from the dietitians, therapists, and so on, social worker helping the family and patient uh, deal with the issues at the end of life. Um, so the hospice was committing fraud, and I and another nurse confronted the management. We said, you know, this is wrong, this is illegal, and... Uh, the vice president of the corporation, very, it's a very large hospice, one of the largest uh, in the country. And uh, she said to me, Ron, you're absolutely correct. We know that we're violating the standards, but nothing's going to happen. We'll get a deficiency, meaning the state will write them up as violating the standards but nothing will happen, and we're not going to be shut down. We'll just keep on going. And wow. uh, she was right. That's 
what happened. They didn't get shut down or anything. And so I filed complaints against them and uh, posted it publicly on the bulletin boards and uh, patient uh, nursing stations and so on so that I invoked the protections for whistleblowers. Um, Many whistleblowers make a mistake by trying to be secretive and uh, filing complaint in private, but then they don't. uh, They can be uh, harassed and retaliated against, and the corporation can claim they weren't retaliating because they didn't know, and then they fire the nurse or whoever the whistleblower is uh, for cause that are false, causes that are falsified. So I had learned from my first experience uh, with an agency that was uh, they were negligent to the patients, and uh, they, fi- they brought me into a room at night with three management uh, personnel and just me, and they fired me on the spot uh, for filing complaints. But my complaints were substantiated in all three cases. Um, and uh, But whistleblowing doesn't necessarily change everything. It, it shines a light, but it doesn't always transform everything, just like a lawsuit doesn't transform everything. It, it makes a little dent. You try to do the good thing, and... Uh, you do the best you can. So anyway, that was back in '96 and '97. As far as hospice, there was also the case of Jose Alvarez, who was a patient who was forced into the hospice facility at the time because they. I remember the hospice was trying to recoup money that they were forced to pay back because of their earlier fraud. So they forced him into the facility when he just wanted to die at home. And hospice is supposed to allow a patient to die at home. Mm-hmm. And and they told him that no continuous care staff were available. And the continuous care team um, is the uh, staff who uh, provide care for those who have extreme symptoms out of control, extreme pain, extreme uh, vomiting, seizures, hiccuping even can just go on for days and days uh, in some cases, breathing problems and so on. And I was on that team, and they lied to the family and said there was no continuous care team. And what they did, they had pulled us from the continuous care team and had us work at the facilities. (laughs) So uh, they lied in order to boost their income, and I filed a complaint about that and that was substantiated with the state of Michigan. Um, so that's part of uh, how I got into this. If people are interested, on our website, hospicepatients.org, uh, they can read articles that I've written, and there are two. One is called Troublemaker, and the other one is Troublemaker too. So it tells a little bit of my story and some of the okay. whistleblowing experiences. Okay. Okay, so then in 1998, that's when you started your website. Well, the organization, yes. Yeah, Yeah, we started the organization. Um, Actually, the uh, medical director of the hospice in Grand Rapids uh, was uh, very supportive of what I was doing and uh, some other doctors and other friends that helped uh, encourage me to go forward. Uh, because okay. there was nothing out there in terms of patient advocacy for hospice patients uh, and families who were being abused. And for 20 years now, I'm quite astounded that there still isn't any organization doing what we do. Um, and we have uh, visitors to our website uh, from all around the world, actually. And we have thousands of pages of material uh, educating the public about end-of-life care, hospice, palliative care, patient advocacy, and their rights. And uh, so we're we're trying to do our best to make a dent in this and and promote the welfare of the patients and the families. 
Right, and and for people to be informed about what's going on. And unfortunately, it's, you know, like I say, it took us six months. And then we found you, and I just Googled, uh, you know, are people really being euthanized? And that's how I came up with you, because I just couldn't believe it. Um, Right. I I just uh, found out that due to a technical issue we have, um, we're going to have to shut at an hour instead of the hour and a half, which we had um, hoped to have. So um, I'm going to go ahead with a couple of questions before we run out. Um, what What is the criteria to be enrolled in hospice? And lately it seems that a lot of more people that maybe don't fit any criteria are being enrolled. What's up with that? Okay, well, uh, originally the hospice, the Medicare hospice benefit uh, stated that the patient had to be certified by a physician as being likely to die within six months. And that still is true generally, but uh, there are um, what are called the advanced illness programs where people are allowed into hospice before the six months prediction, and and that's not a violation anymore. In other words, they've relaxed it. They want to get people into hospice earlier. It saves money over acute hospital care. And what what they find is that by having hospice services, uh, they're saving quite a bit compared to the acute, you know, the patients going into the acute hospital setting. So um, some of the criteria, uh, cancer, you know, stage four or incurable diseases, uh, end-stage COPD, uh, failure to thrive is one that uh, seems a little vague to a lot of people, the patients not gaining weight but actually losing weight steadily. They're, uh, if they're being given nutrition and they can't absorb it, then the body's no longer anabolic or building tissue, but it's catabolic and seen as uh, uh, breaking down. And that's a uh, criteria for entry into hospice. Uh, end-stage heart disease is a big one. Uh, and uh, pulmonary uh, diabetes end-stage. Many of these um, are... Uh, criteria or qualifications to enter into hospice care. But if you just have um, congestive heart failure or a kidney disease um, or or if you've had a stroke, I mean, they don't necessarily, they can't determine that you're going to die in six months. If it can be treated with medication, should they actually be putting those people into hospice? Okay, well... Uh, this gets back to the secular bioethics utilitarianism. Years ago, these patients would just be normal, chronically ill patients, and uh, people can have multiple chronic conditions, more than one. And uh, nowadays, they like to put people into hospice if they can. Uh, and from our perspective, it's not right because they actually should be home health care patients. Putting them into hospice would be okay if it was a pro-life hospice, but most of them are not, and we'll talk about that. Um, But they are being pressured to enter, and many times they are not terminal at all, and they are placed in hospice. Okay. Um, So what we've seen and what I'm hearing you say is we've transformed from being compassionate and supportive to just basically imposing death to patients. Well, not not in all cases. Even the worst hospices aren't killing everybody. Um, They... uh, those who are intent on euthanasia within hospice or stealth euthanasia um, will disguise what they're doing, and many times the families don't even realize that the patient was medically manipulated into death or imposed. And 
Also, they will provide excellent care to some that would duplicate pro-life original hospice care. Um, so it's uh, very hard for many families to know what to do, but the main thing is to uh, listen to their instincts, and if there are red flags, the family members, especially the person who has the medical power of attorney has to speak up and advocate for the patient and the patient has a right to refuse certain medications or treatment but if it's a uh, a pro-euthanasia hospice or a tainted hospice they will find ways um, and sometimes it's best just to get out of there if you can and transform uh, or have a home health care agency take over but how do you know? If you're there and, you know, because most people are trusting that hospice is compassionate. And the people listening to us tonight, the people who have had bad experiences or go to your website, know right. that there are hospices out there that are not compassionate. So Okay, well, let me, let me get to that. Sure. What I'd like people to do is go to our website, and on the upper left-hand corner there's a drop-down box and it shows the euthanasia to hospice timeline. And if they just look at that one page, they will be convinced and understand that the hospice industry today has been utterly taken over by the euthanasia people, secular, bioethics, and utilitarians. So um, the Euthanasia Society of America started in 1938, and they changed their name several times. And then uh, one of the names was Choice in Dying in 1991. This is the Euthanasia Society. But they merged in 2001 with a hospice organization called Partnership for Caring under Dr. Ira Bayas, and that merged with Last Acts, and it may be a little complicated, but if they look at this, they'll see that in 2004, the entire uh, legal rights uh, and everything associated with the surviving organization of the Euthanasia Society was absorbed by the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, which is the national trade organization for hospice agencies. So this national organization is the legal and corporate successor to the Euthanasia Society of America. And this is all hidden from the public. It's completely censored. So if they want to uh, understand how the industry was transformed, all they have to look at is that one page, and they would see that legally and corporately hospice as an industry is mostly controlled by the euthanasia people. Many of the board members of the national organization are euthanasia advocates. The hospice of the Sun Coast, the Florida Sun Coast that killed Terry Schiavo, mm -hmm. that was run by Mary Labiak, and she was a euthanasia supporter. So uh, even though these people may know a lot about end-of-life care and palliative care, um, and sometimes they provide very good care. They consider themselves very professional. But when they believe the life is not worthy of living, that the quality of life is poor, then they will hasten death one way or another. Mm. That's just unbelievable. Well, most of the hospices in the country, I'd say easily 90% of them, are not pro-life original hospice care. They're very rare. Uh, it's very rare to find a truly authentic hospice anymore. We get complaints from all over the country, every state, and they all describe the same kind of scenarios. Um, in the Stealth Euthanasia book we have online, people can read that for free online, um, at the end, there are 12 scenarios that are typical hospice ways of ending the patient's life. And uh, in our main topics page online, there are several stories, including your own. 
Right. People can read that and understand. And then when they see those kinds of things happening, they'll know that they're in a bad situation, that this is a hostile environment to the patient. They have to realize that basically they're fighting for the life of the patient, their loved one, and they need to be on their guard and stand up to any bullying that occurs, medications given against the wishes of the patient, or taken away when they're still needed. There's a lot of things that they do. And because we are expecting they're compassionate, then we don't read those signs. Um, when they, I think, you know, when they want to turn them on their side and, you know, they tell you these are the signs of pain when in actuality it's the sign of the drugs that they gave them. And because we don't know, you know, we don't know what you don't know, so you just go along with what they say. Well, that's why we have the website to educate people and inform right. them of many of these tricks. In other words, if you're intent on killing the patient covertly and not showing what you're really doing, you will lie. These, these staff members will lie and intimidate the family members or patient into doing what they want them to do. And, uh, yes, if they say there's pain just because the patient wiggles their toe, that's not really a sign of pain. And the family has to uh, try to find out on their own uh, if they really think the patient is in pain or if this is bogus. Uh, Sometimes it's real. Sometimes the patient really is in pain. Sometimes the patient has been overdosed and they're trying uh, frantically to communicate and they sound like they're groaning or moaning because they they can't talk. They're being drowned in drugs, basically. Mm-hmm. And so they, they they may say, oh, they're in pain, but really they're objecting to what's going on. Sometimes they are in pain. Sometimes there's, they're not. And, and this should never happen. This is the opposite of what hospice uh, should be about. Um, sometimes they'll say that the patient is actively dying um, because their breathing pattern is different, uh, but these can be these signs can be duplicated by the adverse effects of opioids like morphine and fentanyl mm-hmm. and others. And so online we have the signs of active phase of dying. They can look at that online and see what they are. And if they don't see a lot of those signs, uh, and the patient was eating, drinking, talking, and walking, even going shopping and joking around. A conscious, and then all of a sudden the hospice nurse comes in and the patient is suddenly in a coma, that usually doesn't happen. It, it just is it, right. not normal, especially if it's right after a medication uh, has been increased or started. Uh, the patient may have been on aspirin or Tylenol, and all of a sudden they're on morphine. Uh, if they have real pain, fine. These Medications can be a blessing to relieve pain, but if if the patient doesn't really have a lot of pain, then uh, the, the patient advocate, the person with the power of attorney, should object and put their foot down, even though they may be intimidated by staff and said, oh, you don't want them to suffer. There are many lines that the staff will give to the family members to intimidate them and make them feel guilty for not giving these medications. So right. you really have to stand your ground because today healthcare can be a hostile environment for the patient, and many nurses and doctors will deny that or be horrified to even hear that. But the reality is, uh, especially in hospice, even in the hospital ICU, we hear about cases where the patient went into the intensive care unit, and instead of getting life-saving care, they got palliative care or hospice-type care, uh, and then were let die. So uh, people have to understand that the entire system has been taken over. It's no longer what you think it uh, is, uh, what, what you believe in is that supportive healthcare environment is an illusion. Uh, there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of greed. 
and financial motives uh, take over. And also, philosophically, many of the doctors and nurses simply believe in uh, ending life because they believe that by killing the patient, they're ending the suffering of the patient. So they're doing a good in their mind by killing the patient. It's like putting down a dog. That's how they think. Mm-hmm. So can you say to them, like if you have power of attorney or, you know, you're the spouse or the child of them, can you tell them no more drugs so that you can at least, you know, see if the person comes back to reality and comes out of the coma right. state? I, I you have can done do that. that, right? Yes, okay. yes, you can. I, I, as a nurse, have done that when patients, uh, said objected to the pain medications and they thought it was too much. We backed off and a patient uh, became more conscious, uh, fully conscious, eating and drinking and acting more normally. But if we had continued the medications, they would have died. So, yes, you can certainly back off. You could, The patient has the right to refuse. But and you, you have could to actually, stand your ground. Yes. And you could actually take them to the hospital, right? To take them out yeah. of that settings. Well, the problem, yes and no. Uh, the problem is if you're in hospice, sometimes the uh, ambulances won't take you to the hospital. Uh, if you have a DNR and you have a life-threatening situation, they'll say, well, you're DNR, you're already in hospice. What are you going to the hospital for? So hmm. if, if the ambulance will take you, you call 911 and they're going to take you, that's fine. But I would have the power of attorney uh, write up on a piece of paper, dated and sign it with a statement that says, I am revoking the hospice patient, uh, the hospice uh, benefit, and uh, the patient is going back to regular Medicare if they're on Medicare and so on. They, then they can go to the hospital and, and demand to go to the hospital and be treated. Okay. But for the opioids, uh, the hospital is going to give the uh, opioid antagonist, Narcan, and the hospice people already have that, and they could use it, but th- then they thread it and say, oh, it'll cause a pain crisis, which is a lie because uh, Narcan as a drug, and most people don't think about this, it can be titrated. In other words, your pain medications are adjusted upward to control pain, and Narcan can be titrated or adjusted using small amounts and then increasing amounts until the overdose, uh, the adverse effects of the overdose are overcome. And so you don't have to cause a pain crisis if the patient already had pain, really did have pain. And you, you can have a, pain, a patient with pain who is still overdosed and could be killed um, and you you can back off to a certain point and still control their pain. Or you have a patient who has no pain and they're getting the opioids, just like your recreational drug users are being killed to the tune of tens of thousands every year in the, in the U.S. Um, they're dying of fentanyl and morphine uh, and heroin. People don't realize that Heroin is diacetylmorphine, and when it's in your body and metabolized, very shortly becomes morphine. So they die of morphine when they die of a heroin overdose. It's the same. Uh, it becomes the same thing, basically, in the body. So these drugs are very powerful. They're very beneficial for those who need them. But if they're given in an overdose or inappropriately, they can kill well, when you're giving it to somebody, ten, like they told us with our mom that I'm giving her the amount that I gave my daughter when she broke her arm. But the thing is, if you give 10 milligrams this hour and then add a van right on top of that and then two more hours you give 10 milligrams more, it all adds right. up in the system. And right, right. We have articles we online. Know. People can read about uh, some of these problems. If you... It has any drug, it has a certain length of action. So if morphine instant release lasts three to four hours and you get 10 milligrams and then three or four hours later you get 10 milligrams, the dose that's in the body, the circulating dose, is 10 milligrams. 
But if you give it every two hours, you're doubling the dose because it, the, the initial dose hasn't worn off. And if you give it every hour, you're quadrupling the dose. And sometimes we hear about people giving it every 15 minutes, and that's 16 times the dose of whatever it is. They say, oh, I'm only giving 10 milligrams. But if you give it every 15 minutes, what's in your body is 16, 160 milligrams, which would kill anybody uh, unless they were already on something very high. So, right. Yeah. Um, well, when people go into hospice, um, they don't give you the plan of care. That you know, They don't go over that with you. So when they say that you've signed consent, how can mm-hmm. true informed consent be given when the plan of care is not implemented until after you're enrolled and you sign the agreement? You don't know well, what you're going to do. Well, they give you uh, generally an idea of what services are to be provided and what medications might be given and what constitutes the interdisciplinary uh, team. You, have, you know, the nurses, the doctors, the dietitian, and so on. Um, but to be truly informed, in, even in surgeries that people have, the doctors don't say, oh, you know, if we do this, it's very likely you're going to die. Uh, they're going to try to minimize the risk quite often. And they don't always tell you the side effects. Like if you take Tylenol, uh, the doctors don't tell you, oh, this is the leading cause of liver failure in the United States. Please take Tylenol three or four times a day. They don't. That's, they violate informed consent all the time. Or if you take a leave, maybe you're going to get kidney failure. You know, th- every medication can be harmful some people react terribly, and some people are not harmed at all. So informed consent is a principle that should be applied, but often is not. Well, I think in most cases, I know in my mom's case, um, it was not. It, consent was not given even for the drugs that they gave her, you know, the morphine and um, Ativan and the fentanyl, 100 micrograms, was not consent right so so that's that's what i'm saying they violate the regulations they violate the standards and they do things which harm the patient um and it's tragic it's evil it's wrong shouldn't be done i know hospice administrators who are horrified to hear about these things that they never do it their staff don't do it but uh in most hospices they do these things and that's because the euthanasia people who are running the National Hospice Organization, they train the trainers. They train the people who teach all the staff how to do palliative care uh, at the end of life. Uh, so what you have is people who are utilitarian telling, and, uh, telling the staff, indoctrinating them, not only into the philosophy, but the practice of stealth euthanasia. They believe they're doing great things and they're doing the right thing. They actually are offended if you question them. It's almost like a cult because they become very violently um, vitriolic against anybody who questions them as if they're holier than thou, you know. We have actually seen that. You're absolutely right. So some of these um, directors and physicians that you're talking about that are horrified at this, do they ever speak up? Do they do anything about it? Do they openly say, you know, we don't want to be a hospice that does this? Well, there, those are probably, there's a very few of them, but I, I know a, um, a professor of palliative care who's pro-life who worked at the first hospice in the country, the Connecticut hospice, um, and she's written many textbooks about true, authentic palliative care. They're horrified by what these things are going on. I've talked to them for over 15 years, some of these people. Others have joined the, uh, we had the Pro-Life Healthcare Alliance and the group that uh, was doing most of the work there split off and formed the HALO 
organization, healthcare advocacy and leadership organization. And listeners can should uh, check that check out the organization. It's HaloOrganization.com with one O for organization. Um, there are many resources there, and some of these um, hospice leaders. Uh, there is a hospice leader there. Uh, we have given conferences uh, or set up conferences, and we we've had many speakers. Uh, and people can invite us uh, to speak in their area or even a video conference for a group if they arrange a group that wants to hear uh, more. But I would definitely uh, encourage people to uh, get the newsletter of the HALO organization. Uh, Their mission is to promote uh, life-affirming health care that recognizes the sanctity of life. So there are uh, pro-life hospice people, but they're very few. And I'm not saying there's not pro-life staff in hospices, but if the hospice agency and administration itself is not pro-life, basically what happens is they end up, like me, you get retaliated against, you get harassed, and eventually you leave. And many pro-life nurses are leaving the field just like uh, a nurse doesn't want to uh, be involved with abortion in the hospital or elsewhere, they, uh, if they refuse, sometimes they are fired. They're harassed out. So the healthcare system is, because it's utilitarian, they are uh, steadily weeding out people who are pro-life. So it becomes increasingly a culture of death or hostile to the patient, which is, is the opposite of what it should be, but that's the direction they want to go. Right, because they don't want anybody to question them, and they just want you to follow the, the procedure. Well, they have right? an agenda. No, you mm-hmm. you have to understand there's an agenda behind this. It's not just um, one nurse here and there who's doing this. This is coming from very high levels and has been uh, coming for many years, decades. They've been planning these changes, these uh, transformations of healthcare and society. And uh, you have uh, patients, for example, who are uh, living in a nursing home, but they're brain injured or cognitively disabled. Uh, Back in uh, the 1980s, a guy named Daniel Callahan wrote that the only way to solve the problem, he, he, he's a utilitarian, uh, how to solve the problem was to remove food and water from those he called biologically persistent. And basically that's how they killed Terry Schiavo. That was a precedent-setting case. It was a hospice killing in front of the whole world. Terry mm-hmm. Schiavo was not on any life support. She was brain injured. She was not brain dead. She could communicate, um, and her family uh, loved her, and she loved her family. She responded to her family, and the truth was never told. Every uh, newspaper article that wrote anything about her contained lies. She had fractured ribs, a fractured leg, and a permanent neck injury that could only have come from an attack or a a violent altercation with someone who was much bigger than her. And this has been forensically analyzed very clearly and in-depth if you look at the medical records and all of her injuries at the time. Overnight, in one night, she went from a normal young woman to a brain-injured, permanently disabled woman, a victim of uh, a violent encounter. So and then they killed her later on. And I remember that when it came out because you're right. Everybody watched that on TV, horrified, because her parents did not want them to do that, and they didn't pull plugs, right? Because she was still breathing. They she, stopped feeding her and giving her fluids. Right. They just if I stopped giving you food and water, if you were dependent, you would die. Anybody would die. Absolutely. And that's all it was. She wasn't dependent on medication or a ventilator or anything like that. 
she was uh, simply starved and dehydrated to death. She was the victim, and then they killed the victim. So. Wow. Um, so even if you, once the patient dies and they died from either an overdose in a lot of cases or dehydration or starvation, the death certificate says something else, either kidney failure, congestive heart failure. Um, they list something else. So that's, that's a lie on the death certificate. If you were to get a toxicology report on that individual person, could you then fight back with hospice and say, you know, you lied about why they died? Is there any way that someone can fight back once we've lost our loved ones? Is there a way to make them be responsible? Well, uh, we have had families actually hire private coroners or medical examiners to do another autopsy. Uh, Hospice doesn't normally have uh, the deceased undergo an autopsy, but these families have done autopsies, prove that there were huge doses of morphine or whatever, Um, but the death certificates, these are political calculations. And what you're trying to do is get justice when the system itself is utilitarian. In other words, you, you keep trying to, to get something sweet out of uh, this corrupt Evil. system. Yes, right. So if you went to court, theoretically, maybe you might. You'd have to spend, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees. And it's, a question, it's questionable whether you would get the result. Um, let me give you the example. In 1998, uh, two medical examiners in Volusia County, Florida, and a forensic scientist, Ph.D., um, determined that 19 hospice deaths were homicides due to morphine overdose. They officially ruled this, Okay. So they put it, that was their finding, and they would have put it on the death certificate. So <clears throat> what happened was they sent these cases to the district attorney for prosecution because they knew these were hospice killings. And the district attorney said, no, I'm not going to prosecute, but I'm going to call the state attorney general in 1998. You can look up the story it's still online, CBS 60 Minutes 2. Just look for the article called A Question of Homicide. And you'll read the article. And I've talked personally with the forensic scientist uh, who was there. Uh, they knew it was uh, morphine overdoses. And uh, anyway, it went to the state attorney general who appointed a commission of all hospice physicians. And they determined all the deaths were natural. Then they fired the two longtime uh, coroners or medical examiners in the county. And they, because the forensic scientist was a civil ser- servant, they couldn't just fire him. So they harassed him in many ways. And he got over 100 traffic tickets in one year, and they broke into his home. And he fled the state with his, when his wife and, and child were in the home. They broke in, into his home, and he fled to another state. Um, th- that's how vicious they are uh, in terms of weeding out people who will speak the truth. The culture of death, uh, it's not just a term we throw around. It's very real. And as any whistleblower knows, you stand up to power, you're going to get pushback, you know, uh, Anybody, I mean, Martin Luther King, uh, Jesus, there's a lot of other people. Some are whistleblowers, some are simply protesters. But if you expose corruption or wrongdoing and the power structure wants to keep things as they are, they see you as a threat to their good thing. So, so they will act against you. So what do we do? Okay, so... We, we can't get justice for what's happened. We can't do, get justice. So the only thing that, that I know is to warn people so that they don't put their family members in hospice 
So how do we educate? Well, how do you, we can't, get the word you can't out always there? you can't always avoid putting your loved one in hospice, but you need to listen to your gut, your instincts. If you see red flags, stand up to the intimidation. Uh, if you can put the patient, your loved one, into a home health care setting, that would be better. But I don't totally give up on the courts completely, but the civil, see, there's two systems of uh, appeal, the criminal court and the civil court. The civil court awards mon- monetary damages, and no amount of money is going to make you whole or give you justice when they killed your loved one. No. But the criminal prosecution of a nurse or a doctor who killed your loved one, that is justice. And the problem is every district attorney in every county of the United States has seen these cases and has refused to prosecute. And I've told people for years, and nobody's listened, but I'll tell you again, if any time you believe your loved one has been killed in hospice, and it's obvious from the medical record and very evident, then what you need to do is picket the local district attorney with a a bunch of people day after day, and if you really want to stop it, that's something you have to do. Politics are local, and that local politician can be embarrassed. If you've got signs out there, this district attorney, Joe Smith, refuses to prosecute the murder of my wife or my son, that's going to be on the news if you're out there picketing and you Mm -hmm. do it, not just one person because then they'll think you're a crazy person, but if you can get, you know, several people and really do that. You know, you look at the protesters in the street today protesting for this or that. They have a lot of, some of them are paid, okay, And, and a lot of us are working. We don't have time. But if you want to change society, you've got to be vocal. You've got to be willing to give of your time and your money and actually do something. And like I said, I would encourage people to join the HALO organization, um, learn about patient advocacy. They have training and videos online. The other thing is to read the Stealth Euthanasia book that I wrote in order to empower people. It is the most censored story in America. There's nothing more censored than stealth euthanasia. And by reading it, they'll be informed, then they can tell other people. And if they share that with 10 other people, and they share it with 10 people, and another, uh, it goes on and on, just a few steps, you'll have everybody in the country who needs to know, they would know that this is happening. And then you can have a grassroots movement then you can have a lot of political pressure. But people need to give up their time and actually do this. They need to get informed, share the book. It's online for free. We don't make any money. We're all volunteers here. So this is for the public. And uh, the other thing is I wrote the Restoring the Culture of Life because most of what we talked about tonight is the culture of death and the corruption of the healthcare system. But there's going to be a time when people have to remember what the culture of life is really about. And so we have that also online for free, where people can download it or get it as a book, uh, Restoring the Culture of Life, the Ethics of Life in Healthcare and Society. And you'll read that and you may say, oh, this sounds, you know, I already know some of this stuff. But the idea is we need to have reverence for life, reverence for God. We need to, uh, as we're growing up, get married, have children, have a family, love our children, teach them the ethics of life and the sanctity of life. And, And these things, people think, oh, you have to do something dramatic. No, you don't have to do something dramatic. Whatever it is that you're called to do, if you're, if you're called to, Uh, go to a food kitchen and help people uh, get food when they're hungry or serve in some charity or donate money. You can donate money to us. If we had more money, we would do studies, scientific studies, to prove that the stealth euthanasias are occurring. But we don't have the money. People don't donate. We get some just enough to keep us afloat. 
Uh, we're doing a add, documentary. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, if any of the listeners want to donate, it's to um, Hospice Alliance. Hospice Patients Alliance. Yeah, the website yes. is hospicepatients.org, and, and there's a link there, there to donate. Yes, right. they go can donate directly. directly. Right. We, we, I have wanted for 20 years to do statistical studies, surveys of the public that would be published nationally that would show all these people that were having these experiences. It's not just anecdotal, but we need money to do that. We've never had it, so we haven't done it. But if we had the money, that's one of the first things I would do. We have a family in Kansas that's putting up an electronic billboard uh, by the highway with the big sign, Stealth Euthanasia, go to Hospice Patients Alliance and learn more. And they're paying thousands of dollars to do that uh, in their community because their loved one was killed and they're so upset. That's one thing they're doing. They're also uh, contributing to a documentary we're trying to get done to uh, inform the public about all this that we've discussed tonight. Right. And the um, Family Guide to Hospice Care, um, I was sort of looking at that one. Is that one that will give you step-by-step information? or that, That's about that's what is hospice care, what are the services. It explains everything about hospice care okay. and, and what should happen, what normally happens, what are the services, and uh, – many other things, but we also have on our main topics page many of the similar uh, information there. Uh, It depends what people want, but you can save lives. I think the focus needs to be on trying to help those who are still alive do some good for the people around you in your small circle. You don't have to do something really stupendous. Just do the thing that you know in your heart that's been uh, gnawing at you that maybe I should do that. If you just do that thing, make a change in your world, help some patients, go volunteer at a nursing home. The patients are lonely. Help them and talk to other family members. Educate people. Become involved. That's what we can do. And if you, if anybody out there is listening and you want to tell your story, if you contact Ron, you can write your story and give your story to him, and he will publish it on his website with the other stories of, of people that have lost loved ones to this. Um, I'm sorry, our, t- our time is coming up here, but um, I did want to thank you so much for coming on. You've given us a lot of good information, and I'm thinking that we might want to have you on again sometime. Um, I think sure. we kind of got short and there were more things that we would like to discuss. Um, sure, that would be you. great. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Marty, I'm assuming we don't have anybody asking questions right now. Is that? You no, know, you don't, but you do have a full phone board of 50 callers listening by phone. So that's okay. always a good sign. People are listening. Okay. All right. So y'all can always, uh, on at the bottom, you can make your comments on that. If you have a story that you want to come on the radio and tell, send it to Marsha Joyner2018 at gmail.com. And it's been a delight to have you on, Ron, and I, I do hope you will come back because there were a lot of questions we didn't get sure. to. Sure, sure. Well, so, thank you okay, for having me. Yeah, we've got a caller real quick here. Uh, Go ahead. Area code 508. Go ahead. Okay. Hi. Hi, Terry Warden just came on board today. Um, I'm curious about the legality of this. If this starts in a hospital, which happened to my husband, he went for dehydration and was in no stage of dying, and they denied water and food and drugged him with fentanyl and morphine and oxycodone. What's the legality of a hospital doing that? Well, like denying uh, and denying informed consent and denying the health care proxy was never invoked, and then he was forced right. into hospice and drugged to death. Right. Yeah. the The problem is uh, the the tainted kind of ethics that 
have been proliferating in hospice have spread to the entire healthcare system. And this kind of palliative care that's not authentic palliative care uh, is being applied in the hospitals, and the enforcement of the standards is vanishing. So they're getting away with medical killing. And uh, if a patient is relatively healthy or treatable, not terminal, and some nurse or doctor kills them outright, yes, they're going to prosecute that. But if a patient is seen as what the Nazis called life, unworthy of life, terminally ill, disabled, chronically ill, and they die somehow, even if uh, everything was done wrong, the prosecutors, like I'm saying, they're not prosecuting. And and you, you could be totally correct about everything you say. Uh, and so asking, where's the legality? The laws don't matter if the culture is the culture of death. In other words, the laws on the books are not enforced except for certain people. So some people are more equal than others or... Some patients are more equal than others. Some patients are given uh, their rights are more honored than others, and others are completely tread upon. So uh, we're, the we're question out of, of the we're legal- out of time. Okay. I'm sorry. We, okay. we are thank out of you. time. Uh, thank you. Good night, okay. everyone. Okay. Thank you, Marty. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Um, and Ron, I'll. Are you still on? 